G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 21, from Luke chapter 17, the first verse, through to chapter 18, the eighth verse. We'll call this Faith and Its Consequences. This next section of the Gospel contains a collection of small episodes mainly about faith and its consequences. We read about having to be careful not to hurt anyone else, being prepared to serve in any capacity, giving thanks and praising the Lord, looking forward and behaving in the light of the coming kingdom and being persistent in prayer. First we're going to read chapter 17 verses 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The little ones who might be caused to sin are not defined, but we probably will not be far wrong if we take them to be any Christian who is young in faith. The expression in the NIV, to sin, is more literally to stumble, to cause them to stumble. Question 1. Is the advice of verse 4, where we're told that we should forgive somebody seven times in a day, realistic? Can we sensibly forgive someone seven times if they keep on repeating the same thing for which we need to forgive them? Compare 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 and then from verses 3 to 5 where we read it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans a man has his father's wife and Paul's comment of this is that I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present When you are assembled in the name of Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, 
hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What is the significant difference between these two situations? Perhaps we should not forgive anyone seven times if by so doing we encourage the persistence of the problem. There has to be a difference in our reactions when we are acting as private individuals and when we are acting on behalf of the church. In the situation in 1 Corinthians, Paul is acting on behalf of the fellowship. Question 2. Jesus cannot be saying to the disciples in the verses 5 and 6 of that reading, in response to their request to increase our faith, to talk about a tree be uprooted and planted in the sea, cannot be saying that they have no faith because they cannot throw a tree in the sea. However, he must be saying something about faith. What? Perhaps this is just another example of Jesus' dramatic overstatements to make a memorable saying. But even so, Jesus was challenging the apostles to think bigger about prayer than they had been accustomed to doing. Probably we all need to think bigger about prayer. I certainly do. Question 3. What is the Christian service? I'm thinking of verse 10, where it says, You also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we're unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. What is the Christian service that you do, or have done, which you found hardest to do, only doing it out of a sense of duty? Does asking that question imply a wrong attitude towards duty? You will have to answer the first part of that question yourself. Luke put the comment about duty immediately after the sayings about prayer. Perhaps what we think of as duty, he is suggesting, we should think of as prayer. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The story of the ten lepers is all about seeing and not seeing. A recurrent theme in this gospel. For instance, in Chapter 8, we read that Jesus said, I speak in parables so that those seeing, they may not see. 
And in chapter 10, we read that Jesus turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. It reminds us of the story of Balaam and his donkey, a seer who could not see, and his donkey who could see. Does that mean we need to be donkeys and not seers? I wonder. Question 4. Who saw what here, and with what effect? Who failed to see? What do we find the hardest thing to see, in this sense? What do you do when you see? The first person we are told saw was Jesus. Then just one of the lepers saw he was healed, although presumably all ten of them had been. That one leper saw more deeply than the others what Jesus had done for him, and so he had faith. Probably the other nine did not have faith, but went on their way as spiritually stupid as they came. This one man got far more out of his meeting with Jesus than the rest did. A clear warning to us. Now we're going to read in this chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulphur rained down from the heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside will go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken 
and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This section is about the kingdom of God and is not easy to understand as Jesus seems to have made two sets of interlocking prophetic statements. The first is about what would happen to Jerusalem and did happen to Jerusalem some 40 years later when in response to a revolt by the Jews the Romans attacked it, besieged and largely destroyed it with huge loss of life. The second set of statements is about what will happen at the end of the world. The fall of Jerusalem was the end of the world as they knew it. The end of the world will be the end of the world as we know it. It is not at all easy to know exactly which some of the statements refer to. The destruction of Jerusalem is a sort of prophetic foretaste of that still future end. The very important phrase that is used to summarise the teaching of passages like this is now but not yet, meaning that the kingdom was there in the presence of Jesus and is here now in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but is not yet evident in its full and final glory. Question 5. What does Jesus say here concerning the now But the question of the Pharisees was about the future. What did Jesus say here about this not yet aspect of the kingdom? What do his words suggest our attitudes to these two aspects should be? The now of those days was as difficult as anybody's now of today, full of wars and rumours of wars. Mankind has not changed much in these last 2,000 years. Although Jesus clearly knew there was to be a last day, he offered no suggestions at all about when it would be. The not yet has already stretched out for those 2,000 years. That fact inevitably affects our thinking, making us careless when we should be preparing for it. Jesus is warning against such carelessness be warned. Finally, we're going to read chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
This parable of the unjust judge is difficult. It probably belongs more to what goes before the sayings of Jesus we have just been thinking about than what comes after. Its primary meaning is not about persistent prayer in general, but of our attitudes to the expectation of the final day, for at least four reasons. First, it is about a judge, and the final day is one of judgment. Second, there is a general biblical expectation that the apparent inequities of this present life will be compensated in the future life. As Luke chapter 6 verses 21-25 teaches us, where it says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Verse 7, where it says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Is very similar to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, which reads, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. And verse 8 in our passage, which says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Is about the coming of the Son of Man, and that reflects the statements in Daniel chapter 7. Question 6. What compensating justice in the future life would most please you? Is that wish one that will encourage the Lord to think that he has found faith in you? Were you just being rather selfish? It is perhaps a good job that only you know what your answers to those two linked questions are. It is too easy to read this story as teaching that the Lord measures prayer by its quantity. That seems inherently unlikely. What about its quality? Paul only prayed about his thorn in the flesh three times and then decided he was stuck with it. We might have been tempted to go on pleading with the Lord like the widow in this story. Somewhere between the two stories is the right balance, I should think. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, There is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.